Hello, and welcome to episode 65. I am in your debt for clicking on that little triangle that points to the right to tune in for all things cinematic. Whether this is your first time or your 65th, you are taking time out of your morning, afternoon, or evening, as the case may be, so I send you a sincere thanks for real. I'm your host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. Welp, it's October. The month when ghosts, goblins, and ghouls get right into your grill trying to give you a traditional Halloween fright. But what really frightens me is how little sleep I'll be getting this month. I'll be grading about 80 to 85 essays and writing assignments before the month is out, while sending my seniors college recommendation letters. My son is in the throes of matching band season, not to mention his own college application deadlines. My daughter is ramping up her time at her ballet studio for a couple of shows she's doing, including The Nutcracker. I have a number of film talks lined up at different libraries and senior living facilities, both in person and over Zoom. I have a couple of new talks to research and prepare for that are coming up in November and December. Of course, I'm going on my annual day-long visit to Salem, Mass., about an hour away during the three-day weekend, formerly known as Columbus Weekend. I go over the top with Halloween decorations for both my house and my classroom. Most of this is all stuff I love. And added to the mix is a six-week online course I'm taking through Stanford University on the gothic novel of the 19th century. It'll focus on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I'm properly pumped for. The course meets the Massachusetts state requirement of teachers to accrue a certain number of what they call professional development points in the field they teach by the time their teaching license is up for renewal every five years. I've taught the book Frankenstein a number of times over the years, so there's already that familiarity, but I've never read Dracula, so it's friggin' fantastic to have a solid reason to. But there's a downside to this windfall that relates to the lack of sleep I'm bracing myself for. Because Stanford University is in California, the online class meeting time is a Pacific time. Six weeks, once a week on Tuesdays, from 7pm to 8.50pm, or, as it'll be here in Massachusetts, 10pm to 11.50pm. So as if a nice hot mug of tea in the cold weather weren't already my best friend, we'll be soulmates whispering sweet nothings in each other's ears by the time this course is over. But it'll be worth it in the end. My license is up for renewal in the spring, so I'll be glad to have this done sooner rather than later. So as these two gothic novels will be the perfect seasonal nighttime read throughout October, there'll be other Halloween-y mood setters to enjoy, such as everything going pumpkin-flavored or pumpkin-scented. From iced coffee, chapstick, and candles to hand sanitizer, bread, and probably motor fuel. Another sure sign of fall is the weather is now getting consistently chilly enough for me to tap into my inner New Englander and wear my long sleeve flannel hoodie consistently. Jamie Lee Curtis is pocketing the paycheck, donning a wild wig for the fifth time as her character Laurie Strode, and cranking out yet another Halloween sequel. I haunt the local spirit Halloween store and drool at all of the delightfully expensive delights that I dare not swipe my credit card for. I got my nose pressed against the glass like John Travolta to a toupee shop on a sales day. And it's the season for a steady diet of horror flicks, both classy and schlocky. And speaking of horror that's schlocky, there is a fine actor with one of those voices that's difficult to top in the genre. An icon whose on-screen persona is so indelibly etched in the minds of every lover of 50s-era, gimmick-filled, drive-in horror movie that no Halloween season exists without him. I speak, of course, of the one and only Vincent Price. To be more specific, we're zeroing in on two of my personal favorites of his. Though, if I'm to be totally transparent, I don't think I could narrow it down to five. But for the sake of this episode, I took one for the team and forced myself to choose two. So with the utmost love and affection for most of his filmography, in this episode we will be looking at House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler. 
both from 1959 and both directed by William Castle. Vincent Price, William Castle, two talents, cut from the same maniacally deranged cloth. But if you just heard a second ago the mention of the year 1959, and going back 63 years has you like, no! It's okay, relax, relax, remember, it's Vincent Price we're talking here. Oh, and one other thing, never forget the words of actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. So here's the breakdown for this episode. First, you're gonna get a brief overview of the life of this denizen of demented cinema up to the year both films came out. Spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler. Then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for each one. And then we'll wrap up with the poll results and the listener trivia segment. So join me as we rewind 63 years back to 1959, a year when Bobby Darren's Mack the Knife and La Bamba by Richie Valens were among the tunes that reigned supreme. Motown was formed by Barry Gordon Jr. February 3rd brought the day the music died when rock and roll musicians Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. the Big Bopper Richardson were killed in a plane crash near Clear Lake, Iowa, along with the pilot Roger Peterson. Time Magazine's Man of the Year was Dwight D. Eisenhower. In testimony before Congress, game show contestant Charles Van Doren admitted he had been coached before appearing on NBC's game show 21 in 1956, a story that Robert Redford would bring to the screen in 1994's Quiz Show with John Totoro and Ray Fiennes. Also happening in 1959, 25 South African students climbed into a telephone booth, setting a world's record for the event that they had just created. Alaska and Hawaii became the 49th and 50th states. At the first Grammy Awards, Frank Sinatra won a single award and Alvin and the Chipmunks won three. The TV series The Twilight Zone premiered, as did Bonanza, which was the first regularly scheduled TV program to be broadcast in color. The Bobby Doll made its debut, and the LA Dodgers won the World Series while the Boston Celtics were the NBA champions. And over in Hollywood, these two Vincent Price horror flicks splashed onto the silver screen and redefined the term gimmick when it comes to marketing, at least in the film industry. Let's just say that both have rightfully become cult classics, in my mind anyway. But what's often overlooked when a lot of horror fans think of the name Vincent Price is that he had a pretty solid film career before becoming the King of the Creeps. Vincent Leonard Price Jr. entered this life on May 27, 1911 in St. Louis, Missouri. He was the last of four children. From when he was a kid, he was always into the arts. I mean, theater, music, painting. In fact, when he was 12 years old, he bought an original Rembrandt for $37.50. $5 down and the rest in weekly payments. And I thought I was cool at 12 for mowing enough lawns to save up to buy my own VCR for my bedroom. He graduated from Yale with an English degree. You go, dog. Began acting on stage in films such as The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, starring Betty Davis, The Invisible Man Returns for Universal, the religious picture The Song of Bernadette, starring Jennifer Jones in her Oscar-winning role, the film noir classic Laura, starring Jean Tierney and Dana Andrews, the biblical epic The Ten Commandments, starring about 85% of Hollywood, by the time 1958 rolled around, he was 47 years old and finding good roles becoming more and more scarce. He had done a couple of B-horror flicks by this point, 1953's House of Wax and 1958's The Fly. One day he learned that he had been passed over for a role that he had auditioned for, and he was drowning his sorrows in a cup of coffee at a small shop near the Sam Goldwyn studio. 
And that's when a film director by the name of William Castle walked in, saw him, and went over. Price told him how he just lost out on a role, and in the biggest blessing of good fortune since they invented that little diagram that tells you how to put batteries and things, it just so happened that Castle was beginning to put together a haunted house movie he envisioned that would eventually come to be called House on Haunted Hill. Okay, and can I just tell you, a guy directing a haunted house movie with the last name Castle? That is a gift from the cinematic gods. According to Castle, quote, The male lead had to be someone special. Elegant. Fay. With an offbeat personality. Price was everything the role demanded, and there he was, sitting at the next table. End quote. Castle turned to Price and told him, Mr. Price, fate has brought us together this rainy night. I'm starting a picture in a few weeks, The House on Haunted Hill. It's a ghost story. A millionaire invites six people to spend the night in a haunted house. He chooses the people carefully and offers to pay a great deal of money to each one if they agree to spend the entire night in the haunted house. During the night, many strange ghostly things happen. Blood dripping from the ceiling. Walls shaking. Apparitions appearing. The millionaire, the part that I want you to play, has plotted to kill his wife. She plots to kill him. It's a battle of wits. Price listened, both amused and interested, and offered this response. Who wins? So, the basic premise of House on Haunted Hill, released in the U.S. and in Canada on February 17, 1959, is pretty much already said by William Castle himself. I will add, though, that the opening credits begin flashing on and off a totally black screen as we hear the piercing sound of a woman shrieking, followed by over-the-top maniacal laughter. On a one-note musical cue, there suddenly appears in the center of the screen the face of a man. You're there like, hello! And the camera quickly zooms in so that he takes up a decent chunk of the screen. He's played by Alicia Cook Jr., who appeared in a couple of Humphrey Bogart films like The Maltese Falcon and The Big Sleep. Here, he is looking tense and terrified, almost like any actor would look when they're told they're starring in a movie like House on Haunted Hill. And he murmurs dramatically, The ghosts are moving tonight. Restless. Hungry. May I introduce myself? I'm Watson Pritchett. In just a moment, I'll show you the only really haunted house in the world. Since it was built a century ago, seven people, including my brother, have been murdered in it. Since then, I've owned the house. I only spent one night then, and then when they found me in the morning, I, I was almost dead. The camera pulls back, or maybe the face just flies backwards into oblivion, then the exterior of the house on Haunted Hill itself flies in from the center of the screen, and just as it does, another face pulls into the spot Watson had just occupied. It's Frederick Lauren, played by Vincent Price himself. And he says in that voice of his, I'm Frederick Lauren, and I've rented the house on Haunted Hill tonight so that my wife can give a party. A haunted house party. <laughs> She's so amusing. There'll be food and drink and ghosts, and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. If any of you will spend the next 12 hours in this house, I'll give you each $10,000, or your next of kin in case you don't survive. And that'll do for the spoiler-free setup of House on Haunted Hill. So let's pivot from the floating heads to Price's other 1959 film, The Tingler, the one that'll leave you shivering and tingling yourself as it convinces you that the thing on the screen has jumped out into the real world and onto you. Get this shit off me! The Tingler was released in the U.S. on July 29, 1959, and in the U.K. in October of the same year. This time, Vincent Price plays Dr. Warren Chapin, 
a pathologist who discovers a parasitic creature that thrives in the fear of whoever it physically attaches itself to. As our story begins, the screen is blank and white. Nothing there. Then, in walks none other than director William Castle. He breaks the fourth wall, you see, looks directly into the camera at the viewers, and says, quote, I am William Castle, the director of the motion picture you're about to see. I feel obligated to warn you that some of the sensations, some of the physical reactions which the actors on the screen will feel, and when he says the word screen, he gestures dramatically and forebodingly at the blank whiteness behind him, see her there like, a screen? So he says, which the actors on the screen will feel, will also be experienced for the first time in motion picture history by certain members of this audience. I say certain members because some people are more sensitive to these mysterious electronic impulses than others. These unfortunate, sensitive people will at times feel a strange, tingly sensation. Others will feel it less strongly. And at this point in his monologue, he's got this sly smirk in his face that'll leave you smiling politely as you surreptitiously dial 911 for a paddy wagon to be sent over. But, he says, don't be alarmed. You could protect yourself. At any time you are conscious of a tingling sensation, you may obtain immediate relief by screaming. Don't be embarrassed about opening your mouth and letting rip with all your gut, because the person in the seat right next to you will probably be screaming too. And remember this, a scream at the right time might save your life. And with that little nugget of wisdom, we suddenly get three floating heads against a black screen all screaming. Castle loves those floating heads. A quick dissolve to a man's face with the widest mouth I've seen in four counties grimaces as the camera pulls back, revealing him to be in a cell. Two guards come in and take him by the arms and drag him down the hall as he screams twice more. Turns out his name is Ryerson, and he's being executed at a state prison. So he's done something... not nice. He's killed two women. Standing in the hall, watching him shuffle off to Buffalo, is his brother-in-law, Ollie Higgins, played by Philip Coolidge. And in a nearby lab, Dr. Warren Chapin, played by Vincent Price, prepares for Ryerson's autopsy. Ryerson's body is wheeled in on a gurney, and Ollie comes in to watch the show. Chapin at first says, uh, you can't come in here, but once he finds out that Ollie is Ryerson's brother-in-law, he lets him stay. Chapin tells him that he's noticed that Ryerson's vertebrae are cracked and nearly splinted in two. He's seen this before, always related to fear, the focus of his research. Ollie wonders, hey, maybe that's what causes your spine to tingle. A bemused Chapin calls it the tingler, and wonders, quote, Fear causes tremendous tensions in the body. If you can't relieve them, why can't they become strong enough to kill you? End quote. Chapin writes out the death certificate, citing the cause of death as heart failure. He agrees to drive Ollie back into town, and they pull up to a movie theater that screens silent films. Ollie introduces his wife, Martha Higgins, played by Judith Evelyn, who's deaf and uses ASL, or American Sign Language. She works at the theater box office, and the two of them live in the apartment above. The three of them head up into the kitchen, where she washes her hands compulsively and refuses to shake Chapin's hand as she is germaphobic and has OCD. After talking for a bit, Chapin accidentally breaks a saucer, cutting his hand, which sends Martha reeling in agony and supposedly fainting. Chapin helps her out and says that it wasn't actually a faint, but rather a psychosomatic escape. She comes to, and Chapin takes his cue to exit and drives home. Once home, he's greeted by his sister-in-law, Lucy Stevens, played by Pamela Lincoln. She's getting ready for a date with her schmoo, Dave Morris, played by Daryl Hickman. Dave Morris works for Chapin. They're both scientists, pathologists. Lucy reluctantly tells Chapin that her sister Isabel, 
played by Patricia Cutts doing her best Grace Kelly impersonation in her performance, is out on a date with another man. Isabel is very rich, so rich that she probably hands out more in tips than most of us do in taxes. She inherited the money from her deceased father and controls it. Poor younger sister Lucy is denied access to her share. Just as this plot exposition is unfolding, Dave shows up for their date. He hands over to Chapin what Chapin apparently asked for, LSD, which was legal at the time and used by psychiatrists for research. He tells Chapin that it can produce pretty weird effects. You think? Chapin tells Dave about Martha Higgins and what happened in her kitchen and says he's convinced that what he's looking for is tangible and solid, calling it the Tingler. David and Lucy leave, and after a bit, Chapin looks out the window and sees his wife kissing her date goodnight. She comes in, and they exchange a few words, not the least of which is his implication that she killed her father to get his money. He speaks up on Lucy's behalf about her fair share of the money that she doesn't have, but Isabel refuses to pat with a single nickel. So Chapin pulls a gun on her. And I love this dialogue. She stares in shock and says to him, You are crazy. And his response is, isn't everyone. Now walk straight ahead. I tell you, this scene is reminiscent of Frederick and Annabelle Larn 100%. I mean, just look at the two on-screen wives' names, Annabelle and Isabel. She still refuses to give her little sister, or as she calls her, that silly child, any of her riches. And Chapin pulls the trigger. Isabel drops right down to the ground, and Chapin sees his chance to further his research. He picks her up, places her on the x-ray table, intending to take pictures of her spine to keep exploring the possibilities of a tingler. Once he does, she regains consciousness, and she's like, what the fuck? And he tells her the gun was loaded with blanks. She's mighty pissed and threatens him with, when my turn comes, and it will come, it won't be an experiment. The next day, Chapin shows Dave the negatives of the photos in reverse. Turns out there's something in the spine that's most unusual. Dave says that it looks like a mass, but it's stronger and denser than bone while Chapin asserts that there's no way of knowing what it is unless they can get a specimen of it. When Dave asks whose spine it is, Chapin does not spill the tea, saying it does not matter. But they agree on one thing. It could very well be the Tingler. So they know that the Tingler exists. It's solid. Fear alone energizes it and gives it strength. It exists in every human being, and it's extremely powerful. That's what they know for sure. Chapin then launches into his theories. Fear causes it to spread along the spinal column and makes it arched and rigid. Screaming or any sound of fear paralyzes it, preventing it from bending the spinal column. Screaming may dissolve it, or if it's a living organism, maybe even kill it. Dave asks, you mean it could be alive, a separate and living thing inside our bodies? And Chapin replies, why not? After all, once a human being dies, many things continue to live in the human body like fingernails and hair continuing to grow, the formation of calcium and the bones continuing. Life is not merely a matter of breathing and a beating heart, he says. So here is what Chapin hopes for. If someone could withstand the intense pain without screaming, or otherwise releasing their tension, until they died, an autopsy of that person would offer up a tingler that they could work with. And the scene ends with him saying with absolute certainty that they will eventually find someone who is willing to die for science. And I love the way that the scene dissolves into the next. They both walk back over to the photo of the spinal cord with a tingler wrapped around it and study it intently. Vincent Price lowers his head in concentration, and Daryl Hickman puts his thumb and pointer finger on his face. I can visualize the director saying, okay, good, hold it, hold it, and scene. 
And while Chapin discusses how screaming seems to stop the tingle from bending the spinal column, let's tingle our way over to the behind-the-scenes fun facts for both of today's movies. As always, I want to play fair and remind you that in this segment there may be spoilers, so proceed with the knowledge that there'll be references to different points in the films, potentially including the endings. So, spoiler alert, now. Let's start first with House on Haunted Hill. Number 5. The exterior of the supposedly haunted house during the film's opening scenes is actually the Ennis Brown House in Los Angeles. It was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright and built in 1924. It's listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and it also appears in 1982's Blade Runner and 1991's The Rocketeer. Number 4. The film was a financial success, so much so that its monetary intake was big enough to get none other than Alfred Hitchcock's antenna to go up. He was coming off of a big-budget color studio film, North by Northwest, and he was searching for his next project. And what did his next project turn out to be? A low-budget horror film called Psycho. By the way, check out episode 51, where I talk about Psycho, with Chris from the Movie Psycho podcast. Number 3. The theme music originally had lyrics that were written by Richard Kane, but in the final film, an orchestral version was used. The lyrics go, There's a house on Haunted Hill, where everything's lonely and still, lonely and still, and the ghost of a sigh, when we whispered goodbye, lingers on, and each night gives a heartbroken cry. There's a house on Haunted Hill, where love walked, there's a strange silent chill, strange silent chill. There are memories that yearn for a hatch to return, and a promise we failed to fulfill. But we'll never go back, no, we'll never go back, to the house on Haunted Hill. This is sheer poetry, folks. Number 2. The film's gimmick, the skeleton that appears in the acid-drenched climax, became the stuff of pop culture horror legend. Just as Annabelle goes into the basement and peers into the vat of acid, the skeleton emerges from the deadly drink. It emerges slowly and threateningly. Hence, its nickname, Emerjo. Emerjo speaks to Annabelle and pushes her into the acid, though I'd say that an Olympic swimmer might compliment her form as she practically dives in. Carol Omat was not exactly Meryl Streep, but she's game enough. In certain movie theaters, as this scene unfolded, a fake skeleton emerged from next to the big screen and went over the audience's heads. Castle wrote in his autobiography about how he pitched the idea, quote, We build a separate black box and install it next to the screen. The audience won't be able to see it because it'll blend in with the black surrounding the screen. We build a plastic 12-foot skeleton and put it on a wire running over the audience's heads up to the projection booth. At the point where Vincent Price manipulates the skeleton on the screen, the projectionist pushes a button, the black box at the side opens, the skeleton lights up and moves on the wire, traveling electrically over the audience and up into the balcony. We time it exactly to the movement of the skeleton on the screen, and Price, with his contraption of wires, seems to pull the real skeleton from the balcony back into the screen. End quote. And number one. As Stephen King recalls in his non-fiction book Dance Macabre, Castle also ornamented the movie's publicity by warning ticket buyers that they must have their blood pressure checked before daring to enter the theater. Instead, Emerjo became a popular target for milk duds and pea shooters at the hands of laughing audience members. And if we need any more proof that this movie does not take itself seriously in the slightest, the end credits list that Skeleton is played by himself. And speaking of skeletons, let's creep our way over to the Tingler. 
if you're not too spineless for it. Thank you. Number five. Castle was quoted as saying, quote, I'm going to buzz the asses of everyone in America. End quote. And that's just what happened. They used army surplus vibrators underneath selected cinema seats. These things had been aircraft wing defrosters which shook ice-free in bad weather. So during the film's climax, when the tingler gets loose in the movie theater, the projectionist threw a switch which got the motors going, and audiences jumping and screaming. Then, turning off the lights and the film, a recording of Vincent Price crying out over a loudspeaker went, Ladies and gentlemen, the tingler is loose in the theater. Scream for your lives! And then announces that a patron has fainted. And when the lights went up in the theater, a real live victim would be carried out on a stretcher. Number four. It was the first LSD trip seen on film. And in order to experience true fright, Chapin takes a hit of LSD, which was still legal in the U.S., Rob White, the screenwriter, drew on his own experience of trying LSD out as a student, but he felt the Price's performance in the scene was totally over the top. And it is, but in a movie like this, I say that's not a bad thing. Plus, it references House on Haunted Hill and the Emerjo gimmick by having him look at the skeleton in his office and see it coming to life, and the musical cue is straight from the House on Haunted Hill score. Number 3. Daryl Hickman and Pamela Lincoln were a real-life couple. Hickman was a former child actor who was brought to the film because Castle was seeking out a teenage audience. Hickman took no payment for the role, because Castle convinced him that the film would help raise his girlfriend Lincoln's profile as an actress. The couple married in November 1959 after the film's release, and after raising two sons, they divorced in 1982. And by the way, for his scenes with Vincent Price, Hickman had to wear lifts because he was six inches shorter. Number two. The Tingler is the second and final teaming of William Castle and Vincent Price, after House on Haunted Hill. Castle could not afford to pay Price his salary for either film, so instead Price got a percentage of both films' profits. Number one. And The Tingler has the dubious distinction of securing a spot on the 100 most amusingly bad movies ever made list by the Golden Raspberry Awards. And now it's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. The question for this episode, number 65, asked you which of the two gimmicks, Emerjo the Skeleton or Percepto the Tingler, would freak you out more if you were an audience member in 1959? From the Facebook group Silver Screeners, a respectable 42% of the votes went to Emerjo the Skeleton, but Percepto the Tingler takes the candy corn with 57%. Over on Twitter, the number of votes dropped off a bit from last time, but that's okay. 100% of the votes went for the skeleton. So, in aggregate, Emerjo the Skeleton manages to eke out a victory over the 20 million asses that William Castle claims to have buzzed. Big thanks to all you voters, and as I say every time, these polls are silly fun, all geared towards generating interest in each coming episode. So thank you for taking part in it. And don't forget to keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at FrankMandosa1974. Or you can simply email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. Now on to the trivia segment. In each episode, there's a different trivia question that is directly and sometimes indirectly related to the movies or the cast and crew involved. 
You're all invited to take part in it at any time. Please know, though, that I do like to err on the side of caution. I don't announce both first and last names, just in case that makes anyone uncomfortable. I only announce first name and last initial. But if you tell me otherwise when you submit your answer, full names it is. You get a shout-out as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting. And don't worry about timing either. It does not matter whether you're listening to episode 1 or 65. Answer any trivia question at any time from any episode. You will get your meme and a shout-out in the next one that I record. And if you're a creator of anything, from music to podcasts to websites to YouTube series, I am always happy to give you a no-strings-attached plug. People help people, as I say, and that is all there is to it. So last time, we looked at two other 1950s-era tantalizing tales of terror, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Blob. And the question was... Invasion of the Body Snatchers is about people having their will overtaken by sinister forces with an evil agenda. In the mid-1970s, the thrill of the Stepford Wives put a feminist spin on this premise. What 2017 film, written and directed by Jordan Peele, put a fresh spin on this idea again through an exploration of racism in 21st century America? And the answer is... Get out. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting is on its way to the following in no particular order. The one, the only, Mary C., a longtime regular listener and trivia player. Mary, thank you, as always, and here's to a happy Halloween season. And joining Mary in the trivia royalty circle is my buddy Chris from the podcast The Movie Psycho. He's been on a couple of times, too, to talk about The Departed back in episode 42. And, what else? Psycho, the Hitchcock classic in episode 51 the very same Hitchcock movie that was inspired by House on Haunted Hill. We just recorded again recently, so he'll be back on before you can say William Castle. There's also the legend Liz M., my sister-in-law who kicks ass eight ways from Sunday. She and my brother-in-law Greg were on for episode 48, where we talked about both versions of Dune. And congrats are also in order for DJ Nick from the Gold Standard Podcast. He and his co-hosts, Zan and Rachel, make their way one episode at a time through each of the Best Picture winners over the years. They're up to the year 1987, so their latest takes a look at The Last Emperor. They were on to talk about the Jurassic Park franchise here in episode 61, and I guessed it on their show for 1978's The Deer Hunter. DJ Nick was also generous enough to invite me on one of his other podcasts, Happiness in Darkness, the superhero podcast, where we looked at 1951's Superman and the Mole Men. We'll be collaborating again within a week of this recording, so stay tuned for that as well. DJ Nick, he's in Italy, and he passed on this cool fact. Over in Italy, the title of Get Out is Run. Many thanks, Nick. Keep sending them, and I'll keep mentioning them. Seven Seas from the No On 15 All Cast also joins this week's list, which is great. He's been on Silver Screenist to talk about Close Encounters of the Third Kind in episode 62, and he'll be back on again. We just recorded another episode together a few nights ago, so that's something else to look forward to. Keep your ears open and your eyes peeled. And Silver Screenist Facebook group member Don Boulay proved that she knows her Jordan Peele movies as well. Thank you for playing, Don, and thanks to everyone. You're all appreciated. Whether or not you're a podcaster yourself, you keep this trivia segment alive and well. Keep your eyes open for those memes, and to anyone else kind enough to be listening to this show, please don't hesitate to join in. Nothing to lose, and a shout-out and cool meme to gain. And go ahead and begin with this episode's question. Why the hell not? Name the TV sitcom that ran from 1969 to 1974 
in which Vincent Price made a guest appearance as an eccentric, hiding out in the caves of Hawaii, getting on by eating beans, and holding three brothers named Greg, Peter, and Bobby captive, but then becoming friends with them and their whole family at a big luau by the final shot. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode, or any episode that you've listened to, hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And that brings episode 65 to a close. As I say at the conclusion of every episode, big thanks once again for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please feel free to give Silver Screeners a rating on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really does help to boost the show's visibility in these platforms, which only means that more people can discover it. Catch you next time. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good autumn weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of the oily, smooth voice of Frederick Lauren as he realizes that you are desperate to flee from Haunted Hill and takes sinister delight in letting you know in his own Vincent Pricey way that he is on to your plans to mark him so that you might make good your escape. slip up one of these days. You'd do it again if you thought you could get away with it, wouldn't you? Something about you. Now don't let the ghosts and the ghouls disturb you, darling. And don't sit up all night thinking of ways to get rid of me. It makes wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs>